We are in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is actually going to be a, an overview of the entire book of Romans uh, in a very short amount of time. Uh, but we really want to give you a preview about what this semester will be like. And we're probably not going to be able to make it through the entire book of Romans this semester, but we're going to see how far we can get. And we're at least going to get through chapter 8. But tonight is going to be an overview of the entire uh, book of Romans. And if you'll see on our uh, slide that Rachel made for us, that our series theme that we really want to keep coming back to is this, relying on Christ's righteousness. So Romans chapter 1, we'll read verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this night. And even with a fun event later, we do ask that just for a brief couple of minutes that you would help us to hear you. Father, your word is amazing. It is living and active. It is not just that you used to speak to us, but you are speaking to us. And you do so in the word. So give us ears to hear. Help us to be amazed at this gospel, this righteousness of Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Imagine this. Imagine if the mayor of Stillwater had a decree where he said everyone from the state of Texas had to move out of Stillwater. Y'all are already getting, getting all you know, razzled up here. Uh, that decree would be terrible. But imagine if that decree went on for years. And while that was in play, that we, we kept trying to do RUF here, just with the students that we had, and, and year after year after year, we were still doing RUF. Then one day, the mayor dies, and the new mayor comes to power, and he took away that decree. So then the great state of Texas could come back. Now imagine this. If, you know, for whatever this example is worth, imagine how maybe different RUF might look from the time you left to the way it would be now. Maybe we would start to argue again about what the best gas stations are, uh, which there is a correct answer to that. Uh, or maybe we would argue about which state had better high schools or whatever else we argue about. Now, but what, what if the arguments became so bad that it just inevitably split our group in half and it was Texas versus Oklahoma? What would you do if RUF was so divided like that? What would be your strategy to try to make things better, to try to move people towards each other? I give you that very hypothetical example, uh, but it's not hypothetical to what Paul was dealing with. See, actually what happened is that uh, when Peter, the Apostle Peter, 
uh, at Pentecost, remember in Acts chapter 2, he preached the sermon, he preached the gospel, and there were some people listening to that sermon who were from Rome. They took the gospel back and they planted a church in Rome. Now that church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. So it's basically Jewish people and then every other ethnicity. That's what Gentile means. So it was an ethnically mixed congregation. But then actually one day, the emperor Claudius had issued a decree where Jewish people were banned from the city of Rome. Overnight, that church changed. They kept trying to, to do church, but it was just so different because, you know, maybe half the congregation, maybe more, maybe less, I don't know, but they weren't in the church anymore because they couldn't be in Rome. Eventually, Claudius died and Nero, before he was really bad, like Nero would eventually be, Nero took away that decree so Jewish people could come back into the city of Rome. Imagine after years of this, how different the church would have felt for them, right? Inevitably, kind of what happened here is that there, there began to be arguments and debates, and, and then there was division. There was judgmentalism. There were theological arguments. There were debates on, on what teaching really makes people godly. So what was Paul's answer to that? It's actually very interesting because our day today is very divisive. And it is often very divisive along ethnic lines. What would Paul's suggestion be for us today? Matter of fact, it doesn't matter what the issue is. What is Paul's strategy? What is God's strategy for addressing that issue in your life right now? What Paul does is that he expands and explains the gospel. He dives deep into the gospel of grace because what Paul is trying to get us to see here is this, is that when we understand the gospel, that we grow in godliness. And when we grow in godliness, we grow in unity. When we understand the gospel, we grow in godliness. And when we grow in godliness, we grow in unity. So here's what we're looking at as we overview the book of Romans. Let me tell you, Please grab a Bible and keep it open because I want you to put your eyes on this. We're literally going to be flipping through the book of Romans. Paul wants you to understand this. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, how do you receive the righteousness of Christ? Look back at verse 17 in chapter 1. For in it, talking about the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What is the righteousness of God? Well, here's, here's what the righteousness of God is. We'll really even just think about what, what does just righteousness mean just in its bare definition. Well, it means to do what is right as opposed to doing what is wrong. What is God's righteousness? One way in which the Bible describes God's righteousness is this. God is the ruler of all creation. As far out as space goes, he's ruler over absolutely everyone and everything. There's not a single atom that is outside of his sovereign rule. But here's what God's righteousness means. It means 
that all the time he is ruling in perfect righteousness. God is never wrong in what he does. The moment God's wrong is the moment he's not God. And because God is righteous in all of his actions as he governs creation, and because God made all creation, creation, including us, we are held accountable to God. We answer to him. And we answer to his righteous standard. But there's a problem, right? Are we righteous? No. You see, we fail to live up to God's righteous standard, so there's a problem to us. So, so what does God do? Well, another way in which we see God's righteousness is this, is that this is what specifically uh, uh, verse 17 is talking about, that in the gospel of grace, God shows us how we receive his righteousness. Because here's what God does. We need a righteousness. We need righteous robes to stand in God's favor, to stand and dwell in his presence. So what God does is that he figures out a way by grace to justify us, to, to give us a righteousness. See, what the gospel is talking about, what Paul will unpack, and as we'll see more and more throughout the semester is this, we'll see more of what the righteousness of God is and how we receive that in Jesus Christ. That's kind of Paul's thesis statement, really, is verses 16 and 17. That's what the righteousness of God is, is when God declares an individual to be in the right with him. But maybe you're actually still wondering this, why do we even need a righteousness from God? Look at verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Maybe you've heard this word before, the word called sin. What does that word mean? Actually, that Greek word was a picture of a warrior who would have a spear and when he would throw his spear, if he missed his target, it would be called sin. Sin is missing the mark. Now, maybe a lot of you are going to go to this basketball game tonight, and you will see people miss shots. It doesn't matter how far off that shot is. It doesn't matter if it's an air ball, as if my son not shot it, and it was just kind of like, you know, or if it was like an in and out shot. The bottom line is, you either make it or miss it. Sin shows that we've missed the target. And actually, it's described in these two words. You see those two words there in verse 18. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. See, the target is that we were supposed to be godly. We were supposed to be righteous. But we're not. See, that poses a problem for us because... When we're unrighteous and ungodly, God must punish sin. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, we, we actually understand this today because whatever it might be, whenever we see that justice has not been executed, have you not seen people rise up saying, give us justice? We long for justice. 
We long for things to be made right. And if there's not justice, we don't like it. We know that there are wrong things and that there are good things. That there's unrighteous deeds and there are righteous deeds. Where did we get that desire? But from the one who made us. If God is going to be God, he can't just leave unrighteous deeds unpunished. So we see that there's a problem with our sin. Paul goes on to describe this. What, how, how do we see sin at work? Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. Sin is whenever we don't honor God as God deserves to be honored. Verse 23, sin is rejecting God and we treat other things and other people like God. Verse 24, whenever we reject God who is the creator of our bodies and we say, no, my body is mine and I can do what I want with my body. I don't care what you say. Verses 26 and 27 says this, that sin is seen whenever we worship ourselves as God. And one of the ramifications of that is whenever we just do whatever we want with whoever we want sexually. Paul, look at this list in, in verses 29 to 32. How else do we see sin? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents is in this list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's how we see sin. Chapter 2 goes on to say this, is that even for people who have God's law and who maybe even have grown up in the church, and you might even say you're a believer, but you don't really obey God from the heart, you are a hypocrite and you too are a sinner. That builds up to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Here's the summary of what Paul's going to say about sin. None is righteous no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. So in other words, we can't say this. Well, so-and-so, I'm going to use Colin because I love Colin. Colin loves me. Um, so there we go. I got you. And you're a senior. I got to get you while I can. Um, let's say Colin does really bad. Let's say, I'm going to do this. You're going to murder Cole, okay? Here we go. Colin murders Cole. And what if we said this? Well, Colin's just a really good dude. He just did a bad deed. Like, he's, actually, he's just a really good dude. Now, actually this. What the Bible teaches is this, is that Colin has an evil heart. And there was a situation in his life where evil was able to be unleashed. See, we are sinners. The problem is that we do not have a righteousness before God. But it even says this, look at chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's what Romans is going to show us. It's not just that you and I have sinned, but that we can't even earn it. We can't even 
earn a way back. We can't make things right. And matter of fact, the more we try to earn righteousness, the more we look to God and say, well, I know I've sinned, but I'm going to do better now, the more we actually sin. The problem is, is that once you've sinned, you're plunged into the depths of sin. This is not a situation like this, like maybe at the end of last semester, your grades weren't quite up to a 75 or whatever it is, and you ran to the teacher and said, can you please change my grade? Can you please give me some extra credit? And they were like, okay, okay, I'll do this. God doesn't do that. You either are righteous or you're not. Because the moment he looks over unrighteousness is the moment he is not God. That's a problem. So how do we get righteousness? You feel that tension, right? How, how, how do we get righteousness? righteousness? Because if we don't get righteousness, we're going to perish. Look at verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now. Isn't that amazing? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, it bears witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. You got to get in Jesus Christ if you're going to get the righteousness of God. That's how you get it. You can't just sit back and say, God, toss down from heaven righteousness for me. And you definitely can't say this. You definitely can't say, well, I'm just going to live the rest of my life now. And I'm going to be like Mother Teresa. And I'm just going to make everything else right. Which, by the way, Mother Teresa could not earn righteousness. Because all have sinned. How do you get righteousness? It is not by trying to be enough. It's by getting Jesus. Why is that the case? You see, what we believe about Jesus is this, is that Jesus is the only person in all humanity who always lived a perfectly righteous life. And he did it for people like us. Jesus, every single moment of his life, from the outside to the inside of his life, was always just beating forth obedience and righteousness and love for God. He was perfect. And because he lived a righteous life, he's decided by grace that he would give us his righteousness. He would give it to us. So we got to get Jesus. But how do we get Jesus? We don't get him by earning him. We get him by him giving himself to us. We get him by faith. I've used this definition a lot and I'm going to use it again. What is faith? Faith is not merely believing in God. It is believing God. It's believing that what God says in his word is true. That you can't save yourself. But Jesus can. 
Think about it this way. Where's Aiden Toon? There you are. Aiden's a pilot. Hey, you're a pilot. Yeah, you are. Skylar was flying with him. I was looking on B-Real the other day, and I was like, she is up in the air. Um, let's, let me use this example. It's one thing to believe that Aiden is a pilot, right? I believe he's a pilot. It's a whole other thing for me to believe that Aiden can fly me around and not crash. It's one thing for me to say, like, oh, yeah, I believe in the existence of Aiden. I believe that he is a pilot. It's a whole other thing for me to take faith to step into that plane and let him fly me around. What is faith? It is not merely believing that God exists or that Jesus was a real person. It's not less than that. But faith is looking to Jesus Christ and saying, I don't just believe in you. I believe you. I believe that you are who you say you are, that you are the son of God who took on flesh and that you lived the perfect life and that you died the death that I should have died and you rose again from the dead and that you have ascended into heaven and you did all this. You did it for sinners like me. That's what faith is. You see, when we get Jesus, we get his righteousness. Amen? Which, by the way, let me put that in perspective. Even if you yourself lived a perfect life for the entirety of your life, it would not match the worth of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is of infinite worth. You don't even want to try to earn it yourself. You want Jesus' righteousness. You see, we get the righteousness of God by getting Jesus. Now look at chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Woo! Can't wait till we talk about that one. His faith is counted as righteousness. What we believe is that whenever we believe in Jesus Christ, we are justified. What is justification? Justification is an act. It is a one-time act of God's free grace. Here's what he does. In that act, when God justifies you, he forgives you of all your sin. And he accepts you as righteous in his sight. And he does so only because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus has given you his righteousness. It's not as if you've changed. Well, God, I'm really doing better now, so justify me. No, no, no. You haven't changed at all. But Jesus has given you his righteousness and God says justified. And you receive that by faith alone. Earlier uh, in January, I was at the Cotton Bowl, Roll Way. We won the Cotton Bowl, by the way. Uh, in your face, all of you USC fans. Um, I was at the Cotton Bowl. I tried to get Colin to come with me, but he turned me down. I was really sad. I have, I have issues of insecurity now. Um, I was at the Cotton Bowl, and one of my friends, actually, crazy enough, he was actually able to get us into a suite. So he sent us the tickets. This is what you missed out on. Uh, where, here you are. Um, he, he gave us tickets. I have my phone. and you know, So I go up to the, the, uh, the lady who's guarding kind of like the place to go up into the suite, and I show her the tickets, and she goes, okay, you're good. Imagine this. Imagine if earlier I tried to break into Jerry World, and I had like, you know, whatever the crime would be labeled as. But I tried to break into Jerry World. It would be one thing for the officials of Jerry, yeah, the Cotton Bowl of Jerry World. You see what I'm saying? It'd be one thing for them to just forgive me. 
it would be a whole other thing for them to treat me as if I was Jerry himself and welcome me into the suite. Sometimes you hear people talk about justification this way. People say justification is just as if I never sinned. That's not, that's not fault, but justification is way more than that. It is not just as if you've never sinned. It is just as if you always perfectly lived righteously. Do you know what it means if you're justified? God does not just love you. He does not just love you. He likes you. He does not just love you. He likes you. He looks at you like he would look at his son. He looks at you with the same excitement and joy that he has always looked at his son with for all eternity. Guys, that's what it means to receive the righteousness of God. Amen? It's amazing. When you get Jesus, you get the righteousness of God. Go on to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Paul's building on this argument. Now he's going to talk about, you know, what all does this mean? What happens when we get the righteousness of God? Well, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Aren't some of you just longing for the first moment when you can finally just take off your mask and rest? Believe the gospel. When we get Jesus, we get peace with God. It goes on to say we have access to God. We even have confidence amidst the worst suffering. And even then, here's how amazing the gospel is. Here's how much the gospel will renew us. Now, anytime we enter into a period of suffering, God knows how to use it for our good. He grants us endurance. He grants us character. He grants us hope. Even as we go through terrible suffering. I bet some of you really would like to have these promises because you're going through a very tough time right now. To know for a fact that because you are united to Jesus, though not everything in your life will be perfect right now. But God is reversing the curse of everything in your life, whether you see it or not. Amen. What's amazing here is, look at verse 6. Jesus did not save us when we were good people. It says that he saved us when we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were enemies. What Paul's trying to say here is this. If, If Jesus saved you when you were that, do you think that now that you're saved... That whenever you still struggle with sin, that God's going to say, okay, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore with you. No. No, he saved you when you were horrible, when you didn't even want him. Not just that you didn't want God. Not just that God was your enemy. You were God's enemy. And God reconciled himself to you. Do you think he's going to let you go now? You see, what's amazing here is that at the second half of chapter 5, Paul's going to say this, look, there are two Adams. There, there, there are two people in all of human history that represent everyone. Either the first Adam represents you, or Jesus, who is also the second Adam. 
In the first Adam, we're, we're all naturally born from him. All humanity proceeds from the first Adam. And from that, we, we, we inherit a nature of sin, death, and condemnation. But believing in Jesus Christ, it transplants us from the first Adam to the second Adam. And in this Adam, there's righteousness. There's life. And there's justification. My friends, which Adam represents you? Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Because when you receive Jesus, you, you get all this. Paul says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But listen to this. But even where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Guys, Jesus Christ is more gracious than you are sinful. He is more gracious than you are sinful. Chapter 6 goes on to say this, because we're, we have this, this union with Jesus. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, when we get Jesus, he doesn't just like come alongside of us and walk life with us. He is more than that. He unites himself to us. We live in Jesus and he lives in us. As crazy as that sounds. We are united to Jesus Christ. Here's what this means to you if you are a believer. What's true of Jesus is now true of you. But it also means this. What's been true of you and your sin and your death and your condemnation, your whole life and anything else that comes in the future. What's true of you became true of him on the cross. It's amazing. My friends, let me tell you this. If you want to really know yourself, I know we love thinking about the idea of how can I know myself. You will, if you're a Christian, you will never know yourself unless you are also pursuing to know Jesus Christ. That's how much in union you are with Jesus. You can't think about yourself accurately when you forget him. It's amazing. You don't add to this righteousness. You don't, God's not looking at you and saying like, well, I've done part of it, now you do the rest. No, no, no. It is Jesus, all of it. You do not, if you're a Christian, you no longer have to live for righteousness. No, no, no. Now you live from righteousness. You see that? In Jesus Christ, you are already enough. In Jesus Christ, God has already judged you and he's judged you as righteous, even though you didn't do anything to earn it. And you will always, always have that judgment. Amen? But how can we be sure that we won't lose this righteousness? Look at chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I don't even do what I want. I do the very thing that I hate. Guys, Christians still sin. Christians still struggle with sin. That's what Paul's saying. And so he's saying, like, I, I know I'm in union with Christ, but I'm still struggling. Does that take away God's righteousness? Does that take away God's love? 
We go to chapter 7, verses 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Don't you guys feel that? You want to grow in godliness. You, 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 want, to, you want to live like a Christian. But it's hard. So whenever you sin, is God just going to be like, okay, I'm just done. I just can't. I can't put up with Colin anymore. Murder. Um, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Come on now. Ain't nothing better than that. What, what, the, what the epistle of Romans is saying is this. Once you come in union with Jesus Christ, it does not matter what other sins and sufferings you go through the rest of your life. Nothing changes the fact that you are in union with Christ and you have his righteousness. Nothing. When you feel guilty and when you feel shame, look to Jesus. Because your position as a Christian and sometimes there is good guilt and there's good shame that needs to drive you to Jesus. But don't let that forever determine your reality because your reality is that you are united to Jesus Christ and he is your righteousness. No matter how bad it gets. What's amazing is that the rest of chapter 8 goes on to say, and slowly but surely the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. He's going to give you a new mindset. He's going to give you a new thought life. He's even going to give you hope that all of creation, not just you individually, still water will somehow be transformed and made new and glorified on that last day. I, I, I don't know. Just wait till we get there. It's going to be awesome. And it goes on in chapter 8. Look at verse 28. And as predictable as I am, we're only going to make it to chapter 8. Here's one of the most famous verses in all Scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. My friends, God is going to be undefeated in your life when you believe in Jesus Christ. He will be undefeated. And He will work Everything, whether sin or suffering, he will somehow sovereignly, mysteriously work it for his glory and your good because of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want to close with reading before I give you one great quote. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now listen to this. And I want you to replace this. I want you to make this personal for you if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer, I want you to look at this and say, this is what I can have in Jesus Christ. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, which by the way includes you, None of that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Here's what's interesting. Martin Luther King once said this, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. 
Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. My friends, if Martin Luther King, who was a gospel preacher, by the way, let's never forget that. If Martin Luther King understood that, do you think Paul understood that even amidst division? Even amidst just simple people? What would be your strategy for anything that you face this semester? Because what Paul would say is this. Dive deeper into the gospel of grace. Dive deeper into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do this semester. Let me pray. Father, I'm asking that by your grace and mercy that you would renew us. That you help us to believe that Christ is the righteousness of God. Help us to sing in response. Help us to love one another in light of that. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.